This is Nullius in Verba, a podcast about science. What it is and what it could be. It's co-hosted by me, Smriti Mehta from UC Berkeley. And me, Daniel Lakens from Eindhoven University of Technology. In today's episode, we discuss the pervasive and pernicious issue of publication bias. We disagree about how problematic it is that researchers do not publish every study they run. Additionally, we discuss issues like, do we learn anything from null results given the current state of research practices? Is poorly done research still worth sharing with the scientific community? And how can we move toward a system where null results are informative and worth publishing? Enjoy. It is the peculiar and perpetual error of the human understanding to be more moved and excited by affirmatives than negatives, whereas it ought duly and regularly to be impartial. Nay, in establishing any true axiom, the negative instance is the most powerful. So we're back with our good old friend, Bacon. Bacon, yeah, we had missed he him. He was away yeah. for a couple of episodes, <laughs> but he's back. Aphorism yeah. 46, we read another part of it. Right. But, that, uh, this is the ending. Yeah. And it pertains to our topic for today, which is publication bias. Um, I should say, I should say that if this recording is not going well, we are never going to release this episode. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I will say, I mean, I was kind of impressed with us that we never did that. Like there was no episode that we did even in the beginning that wasn't good enough to get published. So I think our track record is pretty okay. We'll just publish <laughs> yeah. it regardless of how yeah things come out. Yeah, we're yeah. very transparent so far. We have right. no file drawer. Yeah, no file drawers. Yeah. But I did want to ask, I want to start the episode by asking mm. you, so we say, okay, publication bias, who has this bias? Like, I mean, or like, mm. who do you think is the most, the biggest culprit when it comes to publication bias? Like, is it actual researchers? In which case, I guess it would be called the file drawer effect. Mm-hmm. Or is it like editors or publishers? Like, who do you think, like, yeah, holds the most responsibility in perpetuating this bias? Yeah. Um, with this topic, it's difficult to know because mm. it's also hidden. So we're trying sometimes to figure out parts of it. And there have been a couple of studies that we might touch upon on this topic. Um, I'm going to put most of the responsibility, if I'm guessing, at the author's level. Um, because I think many people just have more data than they are sharing. And very often this is because, yeah, you know, they don't don't try to write it up. They've prioritized other findings that are more exciting uh, or that confirm things that they wanted to find. And I'm going to say they use journals, not publishing things. Increasingly, uh, relevant nowadays when we have all these beautiful uh, open access journals that will publish things regardless of the outcome, I would say. So increasingly, they're using it as an excuse that they say something like, well, but, you know, I couldn't even get it published if I tried. I'm just going to put it out there. I think it's mainly the the researchers themselves. What do you think? Interesting. I honestly am not sure. That's why I asked you the question, Daniel. (laughs) But no, I mean, well, yeah, it's hard to, yeah, I I, I honestly, I I will be honest. I'm not sure. I'm not sure who who owns most of that. Because I think, I mean, if you say that, okay, people do have more data than they're putting out. But, but but that's different than saying that people are not publishing things because of null results. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that's when I think when I think publication bias is that, oh, your results came out differently than what you had expected. And then you're n- saying that, oh, I will not publish it because I didn't find what I was looking to find, mm-hmm. w- which sounds a little bit different than, oh, you know, we just have data that's just sitting around. And it's like, oh, well, maybe that data isn't that important to be out in the world. So, you know, I will let people make the judgment if they think that, oh, this is not worth. Now, if they're not publish if they're not trying to publish results because they think that, yeah, if reviewers or editors would not publish it. But are we talking mm. positive results or null results? Mm. Or both? Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I'm a bit biased because I'm studying this. So we actually right. have a project where we're looking into this. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and um, it will be a while before we have the preprint ready. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe this is a good motivation to yeah, finally to get, get this paper out. done yeah. uh-huh. before we release the podcast episode <laughs> so we can just talk about it. But yeah. Um, yeah, we look into some reasons why people don't publish in this project. So they have data sets, but they're not mm-hmm. published and we ask them why. And definitely one of the reasons, one of the big reasons is because um, it didn't support their mm-hmm. predictions. So they have uh, no results and they believe those are difficult to publish. They didn't even try. But there are other ways. There are other reasons why people don't publish. And some are just they're too busy, for example. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, if so if the if the researchers are not publishing, not because because I think, I mean, researchers would, I mean, from 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 the looks of it, they will just publish whatever they can publish and if they're not doing it don't you think it has to be because people are sure that it would not right if they have no results they could not get it published so it's wouldn't it be then the reviewers and editor like the journals that are making the sort of you know indirectly making the decision for the researchers right i'm sure if Mm. they could get no, no results published they would love to um it's it's an interesting question if they would want to. So because it might prove some hypothesis wrong that they care a lot about. Mm. So they might not want to see the result out there. It would be an inconvenient result. Um, so that could happen. Mm. Um, but it's definitely possible that these reviewers and editors wouldn't like it. And there are some papers that look at all sides of the publication process. There's a uh-huh. very nice paper by Tony Greenwald from 1975 where this has uh-huh. happened. And in this paper, you, you I think... Um, he asks all sorts of people, like, would you submit it? But also editors, like, would you accept it? And you basically see bias all along the pipeline. <laughs> so in that sense, I mean, we can just easily say everybody has a little everybody. bit of responsibility. Yeah. But I just like putting a little bit more pressure on us because I think, yeah, starts it starts with us at least trying to submit them, you know. And, uh, yeah, so we have a bit more responsibility, I feel. Okay, I actually, well, I, I would I would not disagree with that, <laughs> um, but I do think that we. It's kind of interesting. This is one thing where I think you and I are, yeah, more like yeah, not as much aligned in our views about this than. Yeah, than, I'm than... looking forward to the rest of this podcast already. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we disagree but, more on this than any previous episode. So let's go. <laughs> yeah, but but actually, before yeah, so before sort of I share like I mean we we since mm. we're brought breaking bacon back we'll also bring our sort of playing the devil's advocate mm-hmm. um bit and so if I were to ask you like can you think of like ways in which publication bias is maybe useful for science mm. or helpful in terms of knowledge generation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah well yeah I guess one argument uh it's not too difficult to come up with a decent uh, argument and that is that if you really designed a crappy study that yielded a null result because it was just a really crappy study, then don't bother anybody else with it. Just hide it away. Just admit defeat and say, okay, yeah, looking back at it, this was a crappy study. So nobody benefits from reading this work. Yes. Which is a lot of it, <laughs> right? That's the that's kind of, okay, you've just made my argument for me. It's like if, <laughs> I mean, if the, yeah, if the if there's just bad studies and there's so many mm. of them and it's I mean it's a little bit more also complicated that yeah but right like if you have something that is low power wasn't designed well right you're mm. because because the assumption mm. of like oh you should publishing everything that you do rests on the assumption that what you've done is a valid test of what you were trying to test and so the fact that mm-hmm. you have you know not found a significant result is sort of informative in that sense yeah um, yeah. Yeah. Even though we still cannot conclude anything from null results, I think that is the issue, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I guess, well, we, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. So there's uh, an issue with informativeness right. of a study. So if you designed a good study, then the results are informative, both if it is a positive result, but also if it's a negative result, because right. I consider a well-designed study, a study where you've prepared to do something like an equivalence test and you can reject the smallest effect size of interest. And if you manage, then you have a conclusive null result or, you know, you can really conclude nothing seems to be going on. So that's what I mean with a well-designed study. And those should be published. And of course, if people did not design a good study, and I don't know how often people do those, but yes, then you, we can argue whether it is worth it. But I wouldn't say even then that all these studies have to go on a big pile that is never shared. That's that's even a bit too far for me, actually. 
Hmm. And what do you think would be the benefit of publishing poorly designed studies? <laughs> asking well, for asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> <Ask your brother. laughs> well, I mean, there are different categories of badly designed, and you pointed out things like an underpowered study, for example, right. you have a small sample size, and then you end up with an inconclusive result. Right? right? That's the problem because maybe you found no significant result, but actually you can't also you, you can't reject. Uh, effects that could still be interesting. So it's like, yeah, maybe it's there, maybe it's not. I didn't have a lot of power. Those studies can be shared. Um, and actually, very often, people ask for those kind of studies when they perform a meta-analysis. Right. But in the current system, they have to email around and post things to list servers and say, hey, does anybody have some data lying around for this topic? Can you please share it? Because I'm going to pull it all together. Well, there I would say, why not just share it? Why don't we publish it? Because then they at least have access to all this data if they want it. We can also debate maybe somewhere how we want to share and publish this. Because I think we have, you know, the traditional journal publication, but we might think of other ways of sharing. So for me, a preprint is also a publication. I mean, for me, that's fine. Mm -hmm. So we can we can debate how we should share certain things. Oh my God, there's so much to talk about here. So I guess one thing would be, what would be the benefit? I mean, I was at first I was thinking, well, you could have just a journal that publishes high quality null results. Again, I might be with you, like if we if we agree that we should try to publish stuff that's well done, right? So studies that are well done, you know, uh, well designed, well powered, if they find null results that should not count against them, against publication, and we should try, definitely try to publish those more. But you could just have a journal that's only high quality, you know, null results. Um, but what you're saying is that no, everybody that does. So what would be the benefit of somebody who's done something, they don't think it's good evidence for either, you know, you know the presence or absence of an effect. Mm -hmm. What's the incentive for them to try to write it up, right, in this way? Because it, it does take effort to translate something into something that could even be a preprint. Yeah. Why, why would they that do takes, that? Yeah. yeah, that takes some effort. And um, it really depends a little bit on the probability that this data set will be included in a future meta-analysis. And if there is a probability that this will happen, then if we do not share them, we have a problem, right? So we're moving maybe too quickly beyond our um, devil's advocate position. But before, you know, we argue what the benefit of not sharing anything would be or everything would be, we first have to point out what the issue is of not sharing certain findings. And the problem is that if you hide non-significant effects, then you're missing low effect sizes because non-significant effects are always smaller effect sizes given certain sample sizes that we have. So there's a bunch of findings and actually you can compute the smallest effect size that can be statistically significant given your sample size and your alpha level. So this mm -hmm. is the minimal statistically detectable effect. So given a study, we know that there are certain effect sizes that can be significant and certain effect sizes that will not be significant if you observe them. And the problem, of course, is that if you hide these smaller effect sizes, then the effect sizes that we have are inflated. And they can mm. be inflated from zero upwards, you know, and we don't know how much they're inflated. But it could be that if we would have all the data, maybe the effect is just a little bit smaller. But in the most extreme case, which sometimes happens, the effect is actually zero if you would have access to all the data sets. Yeah. So, so the goal to share these studies is to prevent confusing effects that are actually inflated effects for effects that are much smaller or maybe even zero. I feel like there's an assumption that that is somewhere in there that I don't agree with. I'm not sure if I'll be able to be able to point it exactly, but mm -hmm. it's it's the idea that people are actually studying what they say, right? Like it, it rests on the assumption that oh, what you let's say you're studying the effect of X on Y, right? Mm -hmm. Even if you need to mm -hmm. aggregate, you know, even if you need to aggregate data, it assumes that if you said you study X, you did actually study X. Right. Mm -hmm. That, it, you know, you're using sort of the same measures, same kind of outcomes. So aggregating results is sort of so tricky, given mm -hmm. the amount of sort of jingle jangle that exists, given the amount of, you yeah. know, type through errors, the way people study things. Right. Mm -hmm. Like their substantive hypotheses don't match up with. Right. Like there's <laughs> all of these issues. And so if you have all these issues 
in the data generation process, then what uses that data if it's just super poor quality will not even actually tell you, not tell you what it's not supposed to tell you. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Now we're really getting into a huge number of topics that we should discuss. But this yeah. is an interesting point and you, you have a valid point here. So you're basically saying, look, all these studies are not even integratable to begin with. Exactly. So the idea that I have that we, we have study one of X on Y and study two of X on Y, but that's actually not significant. So that one is missing. But right. if we had it, we could put it together with all the other ones. And you're just saying, look, there are no X's and Y's. There's just a, a, <laughs> stuff on stuff. And yeah, um, yeah it's my that X is an and your X point. and, you know, yeah. somebody else's X. <laughs> and they're not yeah. all the same. Yeah. 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 It's an interesting point because this is an increasingly hurt criticism in psychology. Right. That there is so much heterogeneity. Right. So we study these things in so many different ways that meta-analysis, if we perform them, they have huge amounts of heterogeneity. Right. In that sense, you might have a point. You're basically saying, yeah, Daniel, I mean, there's no pool or, or pile to put all these studies on. They're all just their own little things and they work or they don't work. And if they don't work, they're not going to be put together with other studies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Bleak. Um, what can we do? <laughs> well, you know, just, just being realistic here. Um, and the other thing that I will, I mean, we still should go back to when, in ways that it might be useful, which I guess maybe this is the kind of point that I would make for that is that, you know, sometimes, I mean, at least, and this might just be just for psychology, although from the sound of it, it seems to be happening in other disciplines too. So there's this um, excellent paper by Fiona Fiddler and um, colleagues called The Epistemic Importance of Establishing the Absence of an Effect. And I mean, it's just chock full of really great stuff. But there's one part that's super relevant to this conversation that I will read out. Mm -hmm. Showing that carrot soup does not cure cancer is not very interesting unless there has been some reason to think that it does. It might be interesting if a previously published report claimed that it does, or if an existing theory predicts that it does. Trying to articulate criteria for which for trying to articulate criteria for what constitutes an interesting absence may at first seem overwhelming perhaps because it makes salient how little is known about the process of theory and hypothesis generation. Scientists might agree that a hypothesis should follow from a theory, but this evades the question of how one should judge what makes a theory interesting. For a long time, scientists have misused the statistical significance of results to answer this question. It is now apparent that the price paid for this practice is publication bias. So mm. I think what they're saying is, you know, like it, yeah, like there's other things that we need to do before we get to the process of being able to test theories well. And, mm -hmm. you know, people have just used this sort of just these p-values as a shortcut for avoiding all that thinking. And I think, yeah, if we have if you don't have a lot of stuff that happens, you know, before then, yeah, maybe a lot of this stuff shouldn't be getting published because it's mm -hmm. not, it, not it's not useful even in the negative, you know, showing supporting like the absence of an effect. We don't even, yeah. right? Like if you have in psychology, you have stuff like, oh looking at pictures of old people will make you walk faster who thought nobody thinks that right like showing that that's an l effect <laughs> is not useful in any you know circumstance well people were very excited about it when i was younger the effect is in the opposite <laughs> direction by the way old old thinking of words related to old people makes you walk more slowly but then the replication didn't work out anyway but you, you point oh, out right. a good point yeah. so let's go back to your devil's advocate position and you're basically saying look if these null results are really uninteresting because mm -hmm. there's no theory that, you know, would would be falsified by a null effect. Um, and nobody really cares about this effect anyway, um, unless it would have been significant. That would be a surprise, right? So if it's significant, it's surprising. People are like, okay, well, I guess I care about it, which is what they say. We use significance levels as a proxy for why something is interesting. But the null result is not interesting. And then if the null result is really not interesting, then maybe indeed, oh, you're, you're ahead. Like I feel you're, you're getting ahead in our discussion. <laughs> I mean, you're slightly winning. Okay, so if it's really uninteresting, theoretically or for any reason, why are you sharing it, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm. And but, but you raise an interesting point is that, okay, but if we had found a significant result, we would have published it because then it would have been interesting, but it's not, in, like, like that is a problem. Right? That is that, very much a problem that is for, an, for a science. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You want you don't want to be like that as a science. No. So then the question is, how do you determine 
what is something that's worth doing before the results come out, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, which is, yeah. I think, the logic behind registered reports, Yeah, which is what they also mentioned in this um, filler paper is that, yeah, that's one of the, you know, the, to me, it's always seemed like, yeah, the, you do that thinking before you actually start collecting the data or running your mm -hmm. study because then it forces you to sort of think about all these steps before you, and it yeah. will be, it hopefully would be interesting, the results, no matter how they turn out. True, um, true. And registered reports also often explicitly ask you what happens if there's a no result. Mm -hmm. So it sort of forces you to think why that is going to be interesting anyway. Yeah. So, so thinking about what makes a no result interesting, I guess in the example just read out, it mm -hmm. says if somebody else already did this. Right. And then you find a null result. Okay, so then at least it falsifies something that happened before. So if people cared about the earlier thing, they should also care about a subsequent null effect. Even though, you know, maybe the next one shows a significant effect again. Of course, we have lines of research. We find type 2 errors sometimes right. as well. So it's not that you don't find it once and now it's game over, but okay. So so that's a good reason, yeah. But if, we had, but if we had more publication bias, then that first study would not have been published. And <laughs> mm. Mm. <laughs> because, mm. right. And then we would not need to correct it. I mean, that's kind of, you know, in some cases, I'm sure it works. But here's here's another question for you, Daniel. We know that the incentives in academia are to publish as much as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. Right. Doesn't that sort of mm. doesn't that create a tension with the fact that people are not publishing things? Like, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, so it's not, yeah, so I think the pressure is not just to publish as much as possible. Actually, I don't think so. There are even some people who publish as much as possible, Yeah. but they are also ridiculed if what they publish is completely nonsense kind of findings. There are some are people they? who, yeah. oh yes, oh yes, there are some people who publish papers like every other day or something, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and they're about nothing, and people... Um, do criticize this. So I think it's not just enough to publish mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah. You have to publish something that's sort of interesting in some way. And I guess it, it's interesting, but if somebody would just publish stuff and it would be no result, no result, no After, result, yeah. I don't think they would get <laughs> as much credit, right? It's not working. So, yeah. And I think I think the reason is, I think it's a heuristic that people use, but it's like, well, if you got no results, you did something, right? Like you made a bad prediction. Even if the study had been done well, like wouldn't it imply that you're, you had missed something, right? Like if you, because the whole point of science, is, well, not the whole point of science, but one of the things <laughs> that you're supposed to do is make predictions then, then, then you, all you're doing is like, oh, I think that this would happen. <laughs> and, and then you <laughs> go out and collect data to see if it happens. But then <laughs> if, you, if you actually did the study well and you found out that actually is not, what happens and people would be like well yeah you made a bad prediction right yeah like does that make yeah. you a bad researcher yeah yeah i mean it probably doesn't yeah. but that's what i'm assuming people do think right that if you're just getting yeah. null after null after null you're just doing something wrong yeah right your theory isn't good enough etc etc right so it's it might yeah. have been even taken as being an incompetent researcher yeah i think so i mean one of the things about this it's maybe a small tangent but um the fact that we have publication bias, I think, and that if you look in the published literature, that we see almost only significant results. Mm -hmm. So everybody's predictions seem to work out all the time. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. So I think if you're a, a young researcher and you don't know that there is publication bias, mm -hmm. I think you will feel like an incompetent researcher because you're like, hey, all my predictions are not working. But everything mm -hmm. I see in the literature seems to work. So all these other people seem to be making predictions. And just to point out the extent of the matter, by the way, so there is in psychology, massive publication bias. Again, it's impossible to quantify, but there have been studies from um, 1959 hmm. where 96% of published papers support the hypothesis that they start with. <laughs> so 96%. And and actually, not too long ago, uh, together with uh, Anna Schill, uh, we did uh, a sort of replication of this for standard reports, like normal mm. scientific articles, we also reach this extremely high uh, probability that you'll support your prediction. So uh, it is um, 
up uh, or or we found 96 maybe the earlier paper wow. found 94 or something you mm. know but really really almost really everything predicts it the interesting thing is that we also looked at registered reports which are much newer mm -hmm. and in these registered reports only 44% of hmm. Uh, the articles found their prediction. So I think that's nice. If you remove publication bias, apparently there are a lot more null results that enter the literature. And maybe as a young researcher, you're like, well, okay, you know, I can get a 44% success rate in my <laughs> prediction. So maybe you feel a bit more like what you're doing makes sense. Yeah, no, that is that is probably an important thing to consider is that there's a lot of people who might be doing things that aren't turning out, right? You know, it's, it is trial and error a lot of the times if you're doing some mm. kind of experimentation. So if you don't know that everybody else has, you know, gone through a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, iterations mm -hmm. of things or what have you, then. Yeah. And, and the heuristic you mentioned that we think, oh, yeah, if you don't make good predictions, you're not a good researcher. I think we should definitely move away from that. Because oh, absolutely. We yeah. make incorrect predictions all the time. We just don't show how often. But, but then the yeah absolutely I but I but then I will push back a little bit and still say that you you can still think of doing research or collecting data or running studies as a learning right like oh I'm trying to mm -hmm. you know work on this experimental design or something like that and I can just collect data it doesn't mean that mm -hmm. you go have, have to go publish that data right it can be something mm -hmm. that is you're doing it in the process of getting to a final study like shouldn't that be okay either like it doesn't mean you have to publish. Because that, mm -hmm. that is still publication bias, right? But it's mm -hmm. still seen as like something formative that you're doing towards running an actual like good, well-powered, well-designed study. Like Sure. We yeah. can do them for educational purposes. Right. right. We can do data collection for educational purposes. And I think one interesting thing is that we have the habit of uh, conflating these two goals. So sometimes we collect data, but it's for education. But then if it turns out nice, we would maybe publish it. But if it doesn't turn out nice, read if it is significant or if it's not <laughs> yeah. significant, we will not publish it. Right. And in, in our department, we've actually moved a little bit away from this distinction or from this conflation of these two goals. Hmm. So we make the distinction slightly clearer. So for example, if you want to do a study with the aim to publish it, we do ask people to really carefully think about their sample size and those mm -hmm. kind of issues. But if you write, this is an educational assignment, Mm -hmm. We actually stress that it, it's perfectly fine to have a very small sample size because in all honesty, when you're a student and you've collected six observations or maybe 10, you've learned how to put a person into a cubicle and ask them to follow the instructions of the computer or whatever your experiment mm -hmm. entails. And, and doing another 40 is really not educational. So if it is for educational purposes, I would actually say, wow, stop after six participants then. I know the data analysis is going to be a bit of a, you know, let down because nothing will be significant. Right. Right? But you can still practice running the statistical test. I mean, so if it's for education, do it for education. But we conflate the two a little bit. And that's a great way into publication bias because now if it happens to work out, we're going to share it maybe and do something with it. I mean, yeah. So the one thing is, yeah, people might, right, like that people are using this heuristic of sort of thinking that you're not a good, you know, researcher <laughs> if you're just publishing null results. The other, <laughs> of course, is that there is this a little bit of a bias of thinking that we haven't really, we don't learn anything from <laughs> null results, right? It's not adding anything new to the, to our <laughs> knowledge base. I mean, part of it, I guess, I mean, we should, I guess, talk about sort of induction and deduction at some point. But I mean, the, the sort of null hypothesis significance testing, you're starting with, with the null hypothesis, which would be if it didn't rain last night, the floor outside would be dry, mm -hmm. right? Now, if you go out and it's not dry, you have just falsified that it did not rain last night, right? So you can mm -hmm. say, okay, it probably did rain, right? And that's, that's sort of the format of modus tollens. But if you go out and it is dry, you cannot conclude that it didn't rain last night. Right. Mm -hmm. It could have rained and could have dried up. Right. And I think that is an issue people would have. Right. Like we're not learning anything. So why does it need to be in the literature? Because we did not observe something. You mean the problem is. Yeah. The, yeah. The problem that not falsifying the null doesn't actually tell you anything about whether or not it rained. But if it's dry, you don't really know. Anything. You don't really You're know anything. Exactly. I mean, they're already, you know, poorly designed hypotheses. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the substantive hypotheses don't match up with the statistical hypotheses. And then on top of that, you're telling me that you didn't even, yeah, right? So what have we really learned, right? Mm -hmm. why, why does it need to be, this information needs to be out there that's not adding value on multiple levels?
Yeah, yeah. No, I understand, but that's an argument against asking bad research questions <laughs> in my perspective, you know, and I, I'm not completely sure how often people do this. Um, there, there's one other category why you would share it anyway, mm -hmm. um, that I just want to use as sort of a safeguard to try to defend my position here. And yep. that is if other people come up with exactly the same what you think is a badly designed study, <laughs> um, then knowing that somebody did it before would probably save them some resources, right? So even if we do a, a study that you think, wow, it's kind of a bad study, it will not tell us much, and if it's a normal result. But then if somebody else was thinking of doing exactly the same study, and they can see that somebody already tried it and found a null result, then at least they might save themselves some resources. Oh, Daniel, I'm, I'm not sure if that sounds like a great reason, especially because that assumes that everybody is going around reading everything that everybody else is doing and going mm. reading at their null results. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> like that is just, you know, you're saying people, people in... just do these studies anyway, so we can't stop yeah. them. So, mm, right. Mm, mm. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it's interesting. You're doing, yeah, you're, you're countering a lot of these things by being quite pessimistic about people's <laughs> working methods, but then also a little but, bit realistic about yeah, some working no. methods so it's mm, yeah like mm. i mean i've seen you know reading stuff is difficult enough when you're just trying mm. to follow you know even good papers let alone i i really don't think it would be a practical mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. reason to do it it yeah yeah but this would be an argument something that we talked about last time as well or in a previous episode about a bit more top-down control so it would be an argument to have some screening before people collect this data especially mm. if they collect a lot of data and the study is expensive then you would want to do some sort of moving the review process to before data collection whether it is a registered report or right. a methodological review step before you collect data or something like this right that yeah. prevents yeah. these kind of badly designed studies right and somebody asks so if it's a no result what are you going to learn and we force people to carefully think about this so now right. we only hopefully have studies where if there is a no result somebody will learn something we'll learn something from it or you could have, you know, competing hypotheses, studies that mm -hmm. it's not like a null versus right. We could make riskier predictions, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And have yeah. or or have, yeah, competing hypotheses where it's not like null versus non-null. It's you're actually saying, oh, which one of these is more likely to be true? Um, yeah. Things along those lines. And, and more theori theoretically derived predictions. So I think when I was uh, doing a PhD, I think we were really trained to like try to find situations in the literature where one theory would make a prediction in this direction and another theory mm. would make a prediction in the opposite direction. Right. And then it doesn't really matter what kind of result you find. You always either support one and falsify the other prediction, or in the worst case, you falsify both of these predictions because you don't find anything that they would predict. But then the result is always interpretable in line with a clear prediction from some theory. And I think that's very good advice. You know, yeah. just doing studies and thinking, what was it? Will carrots cure cancer or something? Or oh, what? Yeah. yeah, carrot soup. Yeah, will carrot yeah. cancer or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can do it. You can get lucky. You know, that's a way to discover something. Uh, that's definitely true. So, but, but that's a very high risk kind of thing. And indeed, in those cases, it might be that these null results are so uninformative. But yeah, even then... Um, I, I do think it's not completely crazy that somebody would come up with a similar idea because, I mean, you came up with that idea. You're saying they won't read it at all. Okay, <laughs> that is very depressing <laughs> if that's true. Um, it probably you know. is true and it is depressing. Yeah, mm, Could be. Um, but nevertheless, um, yeah, I want to move back a little bit more towards a little bit more solid science where people do i i feel we're we're really drifting into this probably happens in some fields but i also think that there are a lot of fields where people use paradigms so they will use the same manipulation that somebody mm. else uses mm. i remember when i was a phd student i was always happy when i saw a talk where there was a new dependent variable that i didn't know but i was like hey this task measures x so i can also use this task mm. or some manipulation that i thought oh this is a, a nice manipulation i can use this so i do think people reuse paradigms or dependent variables and independent variables and then you know we can combine those in some way after a while so i think if you do this kind of research, you have some sort of same measures. You can do some integration. There might be some theory. And and that's where we still have 96% significant results in the literature, right? 
Right. It's not that all the studies that are uh, showing publication bias have, yeah, uninteresting null results or are badly designed. I, I don't think it's that bad. So I think the problem is really also in these these other better designed studies, we also have publication bias. And it's also there, it's still just a problem, I think. And and I'm also happy to give you some credit. I mean, I'm I'm happy to say we should ask people in advance, is your study badly designed and worthless? <laughs> uh, and if so, then you don't have to write up null results. Okay, you just check this box and say, this is a badly designed study, so yeah. you know. And then then I'm happy to give these people, like, don't don't bother writing them up, it's fine. Just check the box saying, just I did admit, a worthless you know? Sure, sure, sure. I'm happy to, to give them that. Yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to, like, figure out where we, like, disagree because I, and I think it's, I think in... In a better, I feel like if things were better, yeah, maybe I'm just like really jaded and just very pessimistic. Maybe that's <laughs> that's what's going on here. Because I think if things are working well, then what you're saying makes sense. And yeah, we should publish. Yeah, if people have, are designing better studies, if we, you know everybody's mm-hmm. reading everything, then of course it, I guess, would make sense that we're trying to publish everything that's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll read another section from the, the Fiddler paper that I just mentioned, because mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it, it's also really good. I mean, there's some great stuff in this paper. In the great majority of uses of null hypothesis significance testing, the hypothesis being tested is not really a prediction of a theory, but rather a nil-null hypothesis, um, that there's no difference between groups or no effect. The only thing that this typical application of null hypothesis significance testing allows one to say is how likely it is for the data, at least as extreme as the observed data, to be produced under the statistical null model. If the probability of obtaining the observed or more extreme data is sufficiently low, almost always p less than 0.05 under the statistical null model, one typically rejects the null model and claims that the presence of an effect or difference, usually in support of a theory of interest. The problem here is not that the absence of an effect has been posited per se, but rather that the mechanical application of the nil-null hypothesis creates further distance between the statistical and substantive hypotheses, and in psychology, connecting statistical and substantive hypotheses is already often difficult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, in in case, so I think if we lived in a world where these problems were less severe, mm-hmm. then I might be more more in line with um, what you're recommending. But for some reason, I just just given also, I mean, you know, like I also advocate for you know, publish less, read more. Like it's it's sort mm-hmm. of hard to be like, oh yeah, we should just be publishing anything maybe people should just be doing less things but doing them well which maybe goes to sort of the idea that we've Mm. talked about of having sort of you know more consensus around which are the important topics you get people together Mm. i mean Mm. that seems to have its own problems right but if i mean Mm. i don't know how it works in most graduate programs in ours it seems like every graduate student is expected to work on their own thing almost Mm. like sort of by themselves and i to me that just seems like a bad model because then you have a Mm. lot of people working on yeah measly studies that like you know will not be super informative maybe aren't even super interesting but people are just doing i mean there's the benefit of sort of yeah having being able to do your own thing and generating your own ideas which i think can be beneficial but Mm -hmm. like that has Mm -hmm. to you have to balance that with the fact that we don't want to just put out just you know a whole host of things in the literature that maybe we could have done without right it just dilutes the whole field yeah but it's definitely interesting this point like if if this research is not going to be integrated anyway everybody's yeah. doing their small little studies then yeah then you make a good point that sharing null results yeah yeah because there's not going to be this meta analytic estimate right but again i think there are quite some fields where there is a bunch of studies on the same thing and people try to do mm-hmm. more or less variations of a theme and and there there's also massive publication bias. Um, I mean, one of the best known examples here, I think, is uh, the ego depletion literature. Mm. We've mentioned mm-hmm. it before, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but because this was one of the cases where um, tests for publication bias showed that there was extreme publication bias in a meta analysis of two hundred of those studies, and. Well, if those could be perfectly integrated or not, somebody put those 200 studies in a meta-analysis. Somebody yeah. said, these are all ego-depletion studies. They all test the theory. Sure, there's heterogeneity, but we're treating them all as a test of ego-depletion. And in, in that study, 
it was just so clear that there was massive bias and people mm. point this out. And there's a, a paper by Carter and McCullough in, 19, uh, or in uh, 2014 where they do a couple of these bias detection tests. And this was mm-hmm. the beginning where they said, look, if we correct for bias, I mean, you can't correct for bias, but you can model what mm-hmm, an effect mm-hmm. size yeah. might be in an unbiased set of studies, mm-hmm. although we never know. And they said it could even be, according to these statistical models, that the effect size is zero if we would have no bias. And then people started to do these large replications. They Mm -hmm. found non-effects. And then even the original authors recently did large replications, also finding non-effects. So, but we still had 200 studies showing that Mm. there was an effect. And, And in my mind, that is just such an immense waste. Now, I mean, your examples of badly designed studies are also a waste. It's true. <laughs> yeah. But this is sort of people, it looked so much like science as it was supposed to happen. And people had been fooling themselves and other people. You know, I had I had colleagues in my department who were building on this ego depletion work, but found null effects and could mm. never publish it. You know, I mean, surprisingly, again, these people are not working in science at the moment. I don't know if it's causally related, but it didn't <laughs> help, you know. Yeah. So. So, so that happens. And, and for me, that's really just such a huge waste, such a used way, a huge waste. No, yeah. I mean, that is definitely a good point and a good example that if you have existing theories that are just wrong or existing effects in the discipline that are just not replicable and you have all these null results that aren't getting published, then mm-hmm. people don't know. They will keep trying to build on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I would say like, well... You're saying that the way to avoid it would be to publish null results, but couldn't you get the same result maybe just by getting people to not p-hack? Because that's the only way that could have happened, right? Is like people publishing all those things because of p-hacking and bad research practices. Okay. Yeah, it could happen in two ways. You could just honestly only report your type 1 errors. I don't think that happened in all of those 200 studies, you know, but you could just have type 1 errors. It would mean that there are literally like, you know, 20 times as many studies that have been performed. So 200 studies in there, but we're talking about, you know, thousands of studies that actually have been performed. And I don't know if that's true or not. You know, my my colleague who did one or Uh two of these studies for her PhD, I don't know how many of those PhD students there are in the world, but I think Mm -hmm. maybe a lot, you know? And if they all did one or two studies, it might just be that these were the type one errors. But of course, there's also some p-hacking in there, so it's good to stop p-hacking. That's always a good idea, you know? Just uh, (laughs) Just in general. But even then, and and I do want to point out, I mean, uh, we talked about your uh, friend, um, Richard Feynman last time, Uh Cargo Gold Science. I just want to remind you something that um, he wrote about these principles. Mm -hmm. So so, uh, good principles of doing science. And and he writes, one example of the principle is this. If you've made up your mind to test a theory or you want to explain some idea, you should always decide to publish it whichever way it comes out. If we only publish results of a certain kind, we can make the argument look good. We must publish both kinds of results. So I'm just using an authority argument here. (laughs) Your scientific hero Feynman says you should publish everything. So yeah, I'm I'm resulting, you know, I'm I'm grasping at straws to convince you. (laughs) That's true. He does say that. But again, I mean... I think, again, even his, what he's saying rests on the assumption that people are doing good science. Yeah, right? testing some theories. Testing or, some actual yeah, yeah. theories, making some, True. you know, risky predictions, testing them well. True. And in that case, of course, I'm 100%, you know, mm. like on board of like, yeah, we should be publishing everything in those cases. Mm. Um, I find it hard to believe that that's how things are in practice. And that's why mm. I'm a little bit yeah. hesitant to be on board with like, let's just yeah. publish everything. Yeah. Well, as we've said before, I mean, sometimes I'm 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 still quite optimistic, maybe in general. So also <laughs> about this, I think if I look around me, I see people really design pretty good studies. And again, I mean, I teach a ton of workshops for PhD students. So you say, you know, they all do their little thing. But yeah, yeah, I do think many actually try to do a useful study in their PhD. So I'm a bit more optimistic about this. And um, and but at least it explains our difference in viewpoint. So I yeah. do agree that if you were right and, you know, this is the situation most of right. the time, then you could really make an argument, yeah, why publish these null results? What What is their use? But I think we're a little bit more on the other side. And that's why I'm also uh, actually quite more strict 
on really thinking that a lot of people should publish all these results. And, and that brings me to a point we have not mentioned so far, but it's another argument I think it's worth considering about why we should publish everything. Mm-hmm. And it's actually based on a, a study that I really like uh, by Pickett and Roche. And I'm just going to um, read out what they ask their participants, right? Mm-hmm. So they explain first the practice of selective reporting. Mm-hmm. So the, And they say this is a practice that some scientists use to get desired results. And then they give a couple of examples. And one example is the following. A scientist runs several experiments, but only reports those experiments that show what he, she wants to see. Mm-hmm. So And then they do a manipulation check. Shmriti, do you agree that this example is selective reporting? This scientist that only publishes? Yes? Yeah. All right. And then they ask the following questions. Do you think that this is morally acceptable or morally unacceptable? And they're asking this of the general public. Hmm. So what do you think the general public says about this selectively reporting Oh, definitely morally unacceptable majority, I would think. Yeah. They have a yes-no judgment, so people can only say yes, it is um, morally acceptable, or no, it's not morally mm-hmm. acceptable. And um, 71% thinks it's morally unacceptable. Right. Then, then they go on and they ask the general public, do you think that a scientist who does this should be fired? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Harsh. Yeah. Well, how many people say- do you think say yes? Which percentage? Well, I'm trying to think, would it be higher or lower than 70%? Probably lower than 70%, definitely. Mm. Um, I would say maybe like, yeah, six, somewhere around 60%, give or take. Yeah, yeah. 63% say yeah. that this selectively reporting, which you are just basically saying that people should do it, right? Your badly designed study, yeah, selectively <laughs> report only those things that work. So the general public says, yeah, 63% just should be fired. They also ask about uh, should receive a funding <laughs> ban. So not yeah. receive any funding. 73% say that's a good idea. And they ask, should it be a crime? Which oh, is wow. interesting because yeah. it's not it's not a crime, of course. There are it's not no even a crime to, like, f- f- to create fraudulent data, right? Like people don't go to jail for that. I don't think yeah. so. Uh, Which I mean, is, that's that's crazy. That that should yeah, be. Yeah. yeah. No, exactly. So should it be a crime? And then, but then, still, thirty-seven percent says yes. It should be a crime. So. Oh wow. So this is another reason why I think we should be, in any case, very very careful about when we think it is acceptable not to publish things. But this selective reporting of only things that work, I think it hurts the trust that the general public has in scientists. Because they think it is morally unacceptable. And I agree that if a scientist publishes a couple of studies or does a couple of studies, but only publishes those that show an effect. And now, you know, I mean, it's really similar studies, right? Then it's a hard hard thing to explain like, yeah, but these are not the same. We can't integrate them. No, you could actually do a small internal meta-analysis over all the studies you've done. Yeah. Yeah. You could, but anyway, they are integratable or whatever the word for that would be. So um, in this case, I think we're hurting the trust that the general public has in scientists. But do you think that I am exaggerating or I should not worry? I can sleep better at night. I shouldn't worry about this because it sometimes keeps me up. I have to be honest. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, if uh, those are the problems that are keeping you up at night, Daniel, I think you're doing fine in life. You know, mm. Um, mm. people have to stay up for much worse. Um, so, um, but here's the thing to say that we should publish everything, right? If you've published, if you've run five studies and, you know, three mm-hmm. of them have not panned out, you're also mm-hmm. assuming that it will get published. And I mean, now I think you can make the argument that you could put it out as a preprint, sure, but that wasn't the case even like 10, 15 no. years ago, right? You couldn't... No, you, completely true. You, you couldn't yeah. have published things that were null because no. of the bias from the other end, right? Um, if that's the case, I mean, it's definitely true that, yeah, we don't know how often people tried to publish it, but yeah, there's probably some bias I'm on sure, ends, right? Like even sure, like sure. ego depletion and stuff, right? I'm sure people found sure. our results and were trying to get it published and then you just got the yeah. thing of like, oh, we but, haven't learned anything. But as you say, we now have preprints. Yeah, so... Not only preprints, but we also have uh, certain open access journals that 
do not really care about novelty or um, the impact of the findings, but they care about the quality of the design of the study. Yeah, and hiring committees also don't care about those journals, so it works out. <laughs> yeah, hiring committees might not care about them, that's true. But in any case, but... the individual scientist can share those null results now. Yeah. I mean, have... it's up to you to decide whether you want to do it or not. And if you yeah. think it's the most efficient way to get tenure, that's yeah. a completely different question. <laughs> yeah. But I you mean, can yeah. do it. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I, I might be shifting just a little bit. But I, I do think that, you know, in, in a system where people are, I mean, a lot of people just seem driven by incentives. That's, I hear that a lot, like, oh, the incentive structure needs to be changed mm -hmm. and this and that. And in that case, you're like, well, yeah, how are you going to incentivize? Oh, you should just put the study that you ran, you found no mm -hmm. results, like now go, you know, put a preprint mm -hmm. out so people know what a bad researcher you are, you know? <laughs> just Again, it it's not the bad researcher. I mean, most... I mean no, yeah, but I'm yeah, just saying, yeah. right? That is, if mm. people are using that as a heuristic, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh, duh, mm -hmm. like, you know. Um, yeah. So I'm just, I'm just trying to be realistic here. That, that is what I think would happen. Yeah. So Daniel, here is another question for you. So in the mm. way science currently works, we do have the system set up where you, you know, you do your research, you write up the paper, you you know think mm -hmm. that oh this is w worth publishing I'll publish it then you go um, through the review process and then you get the result oh reject right your reviewers are saying that mm -hmm. we're going to reject it which means that they're saying that this should not be published mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. these are so mm -hmm. isn't that mm -hmm. is that also like should go in the file drawer it should probably yeah like or it probably, well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. you know but in some cases yeah mm -hmm. in some cases but isn't that I mean then aren't we making the this judgment that oh this really should not be a published yeah. research um, paper. And so doesn't that sort of go against your thing of like, oh, we should publish anything and yeah. everything? Yeah, and, and not only that, but you're really putting me on the spot because <laughs> I have been, of course, uh, this reviewer sometimes, right? right? So yeah. I have sometimes yeah. reviewed something and I thought, look, this should be rejected because I think it is not fixable. Like, mm. it's not fixable. And that comes back to your point of, yeah, this is just a study that's designed in a way you should redo it, you know? So so maybe the most optimistic thing I can say is a reject means go back to the drawing board and give me something maybe that, that includes is, this right. study, but then also something that's better. But sometimes, yeah, some things you're just like, yeah, no, no, I don't see that this the should benefit of it. of it, be, it being yeah in the public eye which i mean you know then one can make the argument that the way the system is working is totally fine right good studies get <laughs> published and what doesn't just stays in the file drawer and uh, everything is... again this is a category <laughs> this is a category of things i am giving this to you fully um but we also do it for stuff right that we do want to share so i mean really we should have both sides but but i do agree that um not everything makes it through the publication process. And I think if you'd ask people, like, should everything make it through the publication mm -hmm. process, they would also say, uh, yeah. no, that doesn't sound like a particularly good idea. So there we are. Yeah. So we do. Um, yeah. And do you. But then we, yeah, we really want good studies, basically. That's what we need to begin with. Right. Exactly. And isn't there, I mean, then would you, maybe, maybe some kind of a compromise would be that you still publish stuff that's been rejected. Isn't there a journal like that? Of like the journal of rejected. Sure. Something, something. That people have tried these kind of journals over the past. I don't think anything actually came out succeeded. of it. Yeah, but you know, well, it's interesting to think of alternative solutions. Yeah, would you say that? Let's say you try to publish something, you get rejected. Maybe you know twice. You try to two different, and then you're like, I'm not. Would you? Would you then recommend people put it like as a preprint or like somewhere up, even though you have had multiple people tell you this is junk? Yeah, yeah. Again, this would work much. Uh, better if we have keep people who come together and they say hey look this was my experience we tried this mm -hmm. it didn't work and if you say oh this is good to know so it's shared in a way within a community of people who care about this maybe not written up but everybody is aware and they're like okay but wait we can do this in a better way actually mm -hmm. let's do it like this so maybe you know it would f f be a sort of pilot study lead to something else mm -hmm. And and maybe you would say somewhere in your introduction, like, well, two of the authors had this really idea that this would work, but it was a stupid idea and we <laughs> see it now. But here we are with a better plan uh, mm. and some nicer studies that we ran subsequently. Yeah, that would be interesting. I mean, it is definitely a good recommendation, but it also rests on like having some kind of a organized system where people are paying attention to what yeah. they're doing and sort of, you know, a, a bit more, yeah, like 
collaboration and listening across, yeah. you know, towards towards other people are doing where I, I'm not sure how much that of that is happening. But okay. no, but it seems to be the solution we keep coming back yeah. to again and again. And again. Yeah, yeah. But you you asked, so what can we do to incentivize this? Uh, right. Incentivize this, and I, and I have an uh, example that happens. But let's just first move from our own little field to a different field. We're now gonna go into medicine, huh, okay. the field of medicine. Mm -hmm. Would you now feel a little bit worse if there's publication bias all over the place? Medical studies do have to do cl uh, register for clinical trials, right? There, I mean, mm -hmm. and the clinical states are, are the registered. Mm -hmm. Registered, yeah. I, I mean, they they all have to be registered. I mean, I will say, okay, yeah. That's, I mean, I I wish I knew more about how things are done. Like, I know a lot of their stuff isn't, you know, a lot of their research isn't sort of reproducible and replicable. Even, you know, lots of issues there as well. But don't you think? I mean, the stakes are so much higher there, right? Mm -hmm. If you're actually giving you know, medical treatment, a lot of it is not mm -hmm. experimental, you know, the way we just like bring people into labs and stuff like that. You'd be like, oh, you're working with a doctor and they're prescribing different treatments. And so you're trying to figure out which treatment work better and stuff, right? So I think mm -hmm. the stakes are a little bit higher. They might also have mm -hmm. more observational studies, which I think are, you know, there the null effects would probably be, their sample sizes are probably, well, I don't know. Again, I, I'm mm. talking out of my, <laughs> you know, just mm. uh, making shit up but at okay. this point. But, you know, like, I, I do think that when they, they do, they, I'm hoping that they're a little bit more careful about what they're doing because there's, <laughs> you know, actual medical interventions involved with okay. people and yeah, yeah. more observational so, studies and less, you know, less kind of issues that we we deal with in psychology where, yeah. you know, the stuff is just not interesting. Hypotheses don't make sense. They're not really, <laughs> right? Like, stuff like that. Their sure. outcomes are like dead or not dead. Okay? Exactly. It, yeah, it's yeah. like, it's, it's a little bit simpler. In, yeah, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So the stakes are a little bit higher and you already right. mentioned clinical trials. I think certain clinical trials or maybe all clinical trials now have to be registered. So people right. have to specify in advance. Yeah. And this has been going on for a very long, a long time, time, actually, since the year 2000, more or less. Right. Yeah. But these registrations did not have to be updated with the results. So we still had publication bias. Mm. I mean, it was still possible until a couple of years ago when there are these very strict uh, uh, institutions like the FDA mm -hmm. that make rules for people in this field. And they said, okay, you should now also report the outcome of your mm -hmm. primary tests. Mm. So they required this for a while. And of course, they had no real, you know, stick so they just asked kindly, would you please report this? So nobody did. And then they uh, made some new regulations. And now um, they can fine hmm. researchers that did not report the results after so much time after the trial has ended. So they give them some time to analyze it. Hmm. And, then, and then they can fine them. Oh, I don't know exactly how much, but from memory, something like $1,000 a day. Oh, wow. Yeah. For not, oh, they, they have not fined somebody, as far as I know, ever. Oh, interesting. There's actually uh, a website uh, by people, I think um, Ben Goldacre is behind this, uh, uh, also a meta scientist in the mm. medical field. And it's called, I think, something like FDA tr f um, Trial Tracker mm. or something like this. We'll put it in the show notes. Mm -hmm. But um, And you can look um, how many trials have not reported their results and they also have this nice counter of how many thousands i mean maybe millions <laughs> or billions by now yeah. uh, the fda could get if they would actually give those fines out but they haven't done it yet yeah <laughs> but that's a pretty good you know a pretty good stick and changing yeah. the incentives if we would start to find people they would think well, okay now it's worth my time that's not incentive that's punishment daniel it's punishment that's yeah. almost uh, even better <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> I don't know about that, but okay. Yeah. No, but I, yeah. Me medical, so we, yeah. we could do it, you know, we could do we it. Can. I think in any field we can do it. And of course, you know, if we do very large studies, we have other ways to get there that most results come out. I mean, we can do our registered reports. Those are right. a lovely solution for pre publication. Even pre-registrations help, right? You cannot... Mwah, 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 well, mwah. no, but... Because right, you like don't I... have to report your study with a pre-registration. You can still hide it away. Sure, yeah. But I do... But Well, but I do think that... I mean, now you have... I mean, at least in psychology, you don't see like single study papers... A lot, right? It's usually multiple studies. So you could have a case where, yeah, you pre-register everything. These are the ones that came out. These are not. 
mixed results are what you would expect anyway. And I do think that people are would be more likely to publish that stuff when you're like, oh, yeah, we called it. This is what we got. This is what we didn't find. Right. Well, doesn't that make Maybe. it a lot more believable than oh, like, yeah, we will just like hide the study right it's still oh yeah that's an interesting uh, interesting thing i think it's slowly as people are starting to realize that you should yeah. get mixed results in sets yeah. of studies i think people are maybe thinking look if i just only send in significant results it's not even realistic but maybe look, you know yeah. they just add one non-significant result just to make it more believable but they still have 12 that they've hidden away no yeah pre-registration by itself does not solve publication no. bias no no. Oh, not, no, not definitely, definitely yeah. not. Right. Yeah. But I do think that it might make mixed results easier to publish. Yeah, that, that might be true. But I was actually thinking in addition to registered board, we now have many of these many labs kind of research projects mm -hmm. or large team science where people are just collecting so much data that nobody would think of not sharing the results you know because it's such a big team effort so um, everybody knows the study has been done so this more collaborative way of doing research also helps with sharing don't don't you think so oh well again you, I you know of <laughs> huge collectives that have hidden away their findings yeah not Maybe hidden away no not hidden away but there is some stuff that i have seen from big collaborations that i don't think should be published <laughs> mm. i'm like yeah no, nobody needed to know this Okay, you know? okay, okay, okay. Like, well, anyway, all those people <laughs> thought that it was worth doing. Well, but that's but, but that's because yeah, uh, well, yeah, it, it is like the once you've you know it's the sunk cost fallacy, right? Once you've put that much effort into it, how are you not <laughs> going to get it pub? You know, try to get it published. Okay, that can happen again. We're in the pretty negative side. Oh, of things. sorry. But, yeah. but if people design the study that they you think caught is me on a bad day, think, yeah, yeah. But I think um, the team approach makes it so that people are just like, yeah, we're just sharing this and uh, we've all put effort in it, so we're all going to write it up. So I feel that also helps a little bit because it's not like, how am I going to spend my right. next three months? Am I writing up this null result or doing a new study? No, this is a large collaboration. Somebody had the task to write up the results right. anyway, and somebody else had a different task and everybody does their, their thing. I don't know, maybe it's a bit of a prediction, but I think it might work in the future, yeah. it might help. No, I mean, I think, and I think what we probably need, what I think is just better quality controls, right? Sure. If we had better quality controls and, at every level, then I would totally be on board with everything you're saying. And maybe that's what we should aim for, right? It's not that, oh, should we publish null or significant results? We should publish well-done studies of high quality, no matter how they are. So, you mm -hmm. know, the goal should just be to improve well, I guess that's, yeah, why we're here. <laughs> but, hmm. but, but you know, the goal should just be like people, you know, high quality research and that mm -hmm. should get published regardless of how it comes out. Yeah. And I think especially if you thought you designed a good study, you should not hide any results that right. you feel right. are inconvenient or yeah, just doesn't, right. or you know, doesn't don't make your study your... look good. Exactly, exactly. And yeah. this is also um, from this paper by uh, Tony Greenwald from 1975 um, about uh, consequences of prejudice against the null hypothesis. That's the paper. It's a very nice read. Mm -hmm. um, and this is the end of the paper. And, and he writes here, first, it's truly a gross ethical violation for a researcher to suppress reporting of difficult to explain or embarrassing data in order to present a neat and attractive package to a journal editor mm. so gross ethical violation he calls mm -hmm. it and i think you know that's a mm -hmm. point and and second it is to be hoped that journal editors will base publication decisions on criteria of importance and methodological soundness uninfluenced by whether a result supports or rejects a null hypothesis so this is 1975 right i mean already yeah has well maybe it has happened sometimes now and at least in these registered reports yeah we're moving hopefully towards it but in yeah. the right, the right. So design better studies, then you are happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then if you've designed better studies, then report all of them. Then I am happy. Can we reach agreement yeah. on this? Maybe? Yeah. Yeah. I okay. think we can okay. reach agreement That's there. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> good. 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 There's one one other thing I thought was very funny uh -huh. um, uh, about this topic, and it's sort of a joke on these um, 96, 94 percent accuracy rates in our predictions uh -huh. if you only yeah. look at the scientific uh -huh. literature do you know um uh, a 
yeah, I don't know if it's a well-known scholar, but uh, there's this scholar called Arina K. Bones. Oh, have you ever heard of this yeah, person? of course I have heard. I mean, I've yeah. heard of her and who she is, actually. Yeah, yeah, All right. of course. All right, very good. Pretty famous, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, there was a paper in response to, uh, at the start of the replication crisis, we had the precognition studies by Daryl yeah. Bam. Mm -hmm. And then this is a satirical sort of like joke article. Uh -huh. uh, and it says, yeah, you know, I mean, if we had such high um, prediction rates, uh -huh. then uh, Daryl Bam actually just showed super weak effects. Like psychologists <laughs> are much better better at predicting the future <laughs> because they have a prediction and then they're almost always right right so the, the they're in this paper the recommendation that they that they write down is with a near 100% accuracy rate psychological sciences have clearly demonstrated that psychological scientists already know what is going to occur and then comes what I think is a great recommendation and it's going to make life easier for all of us this makes the subsequent empirical confirmation superfluous once predicted, mm. there is no logical justification for expending the resources to actually conduct the data collection and analysis. So yeah, uh, in the future, we can just skip the whole data collection. You say we had a hypothesis. Well, we know 96% of our hypothesis work out anyway. So let's just act as if my hypothesis is supported by data. Isn't that nice? That would be nice. And that would, you know, <laughs> totally support what I'm saying is that we shouldn't publish anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I like this much, much more efficient than what we're doing now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I totally agree. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nullius in Verba. Our theme song is Newton's Cradle by Grand Brothers. If you have any thoughts, feedback, or comments you'd like to share, you can reach us over email at nulliusinverbapod at gmail.com or our social media accounts at Mastodon or Twitter. In this episode, we discuss the problem of publication bias and whether it might be a consequence of an even bigger problem in science. We do not perform informative studies. In our next episode, we will examine a possible cause of this problem, namely our fixation on performing null hypothesis significance tests that dichotomize results as significant or non-significant. We hope you will join us.